Good evening. I'm Yael Cassander, and welcome to WFIU's Profiles. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, entertainers, and other notable figures to the WFIU audience. Our guest today is Stephen Ferry. An award-winning photojournalist, Stephen Ferry's latest work is Violentology, a manual of the Colombian conflict, published by Umbridge Editions in March 2012. Since the late 1980s, Stephen has worked as an international photojournalist in collaboration with The New Yorker, National Geographic, The New York Times, and others throughout Eastern Europe, Northern Africa, and the Middle East, covering social and political change, human rights, and the environment. A fluent Spanish speaker, Stephen has developed an understanding of Latin American culture, society, and politics from over 20 years of covering the region. Stephen Ferry's work has been honored with two World Press Awards and numerous prizes in the Picture of the Year and the Best of Photojournalism contests. He has received grants and fellowships from the National Geographic Expeditions Council, the Ambassadors Fund for Cultural Preservation, the Fund for Investigative Journalism, the Open Society Institute, and many others. Stephen is on the faculty of the Foundation for New Ibero-American Journalism in Cartagena, Colombia which was founded by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and the International Center of Photography in Midtown Manhattan. Stephen Ferry, welcome to Profiles. It's an honor to have you on the program. Thank you very much for having me. You're here at IU to speak about your new book, in which you document Colombia's internal armed conflict through photographs, archival photos others have taken, and essays. And I anticipate that our conversation today is going to dwell on the situation in Colombia. But I'd like to preface that journey with a better understanding of what led you to it and what kind of person chooses to spend his career doing the things you've done. In the book's introduction, you mentioned growing up in the States during the Vietnam era and poring over those photographs in Life magazine. And it seems like that period was especially formative to you in terms of what you went on to do professionally. Tell me more about your childhood and why those photos at that time made such a big impression on you. I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which was a center of protest against the war. The Vietnam War was on everybody's mind. There were riots close to my house with some frequency. All kinds of groups were out on the street proclaiming their point of view. And I found all this fascinating. Um, And it was a matter of concern. I mean, my own family and everybody was really, really concerned about the war. And the way that I came to understand all this was, as you say, through looking at at Life magazine, um, which would come to my family's house. There was one moment in, I think it was fifth grade, when I brought a magazine into school. I think we were asked to bring something in to talk about it. And it had a picture of a little girl whose skin was burned after a napalm attack in Vietnam. Another kid in the class whose parents I knew supported the war such were the divisions in the society at that time, uh, even though we were little kids. And we, we actually got in a fight over it. Mm. Um, so those pictures really made an impression on me. So when you looked at those pictures, were you thinking, wow, that's the kind of thing I would like to do is be that photographer there in Vietnam documenting this situation? Or was it then that you learned the power of the image? A couple of things came together. I was really lucky because, for one thing, at about that same age, a science teacher brought in a developing tank and reel. And just one day in science class, he showed us how to develop film. 
And I remember that as if it were yesterday. It was a steel tank. Um, I remember this clear water coming out of this metal faucet, and, and I became fascinated. And I lived close to a photo store with a lab, and they were kind enough to put up with me because I would just go around a lot and, and ask them questions and so on. So I learned how to develop film and print film young. Then, you know, at the same time, I became very interested in the news. I've always been an avid newspaper reader. And so sometime later on in my life, in the course of being in college, those two interests came together in the idea of being a photojournalist. So you you had an interest in the news. Was it, like many other photojournalists, a desire to not only document and account what's going on, but in fact to improve the way that so many of our photojournalists have done, this humanist tradition of trying to document something in order to make it better. Was that part of your impulse at that time? We do, you know, as as a group, most most of my colleagues, you know, I think we all entertain this illusion or this hope that the images will awaken people to situations that are unacceptable, that really should not be happening, and and maybe mobilize public opinion. It probably happens far less than than we would like, you know. But the other context, and again, Life magazine is important in this, were, were the imagery that was coming out of the civil rights era. Danny Lyon and Charles Moore and other great photographers who were working in the American South. And so inevitably, I think when I was a kid, there was some idea that, that the documentation can also somehow be helpful when it's important to to show and to denounce abuses. So you're in college and you're studying photography. How did um, the professional gigs start Mm. coming? I actually went to um, a liberal arts college. I kind of thought about it and decided that um, I'd learn photography on my own as best I could and, you know, try to learn how to read and write as well. Um, Then when I got out of college, you know, by that time I I was set on this career path and I began doing everything, um, assisting a wedding photographer, assisting portrait photographers. I had a job, a day job, as they say, with with the New York City government. And I was working kind of as a community organizer in a lot of very marginal neighborhoods. This is in the mid-1980s, and there were a lot of neighborhoods under a lot of stress. In New York City? In New York City. That yeah. was a rough time. Yeah. And those neighborhood organizations that I was working with expressed that photographs would help them. So I started taking pictures as part of the job. And then at that time, the Statue of Liberty was being renovated for the centennial. It was difficult for photographers to get access. You know, there was a scaffolding that went all the way up and it, you know, it reached the face of the statue and, and so on. Um, and because I was working for the city government, I was able to get access. I, I convinced my, my bosses that I could take pictures of this renovation for New York City budget documents. Hmm. And so I got to climb up the scaffolding. I was right up there, you know, touching her nose and, and so on and taking pictures in color. And I took them to one of the great photojournalism agencies, which at that time were – all of them were both French and American – all I was thinking, you know, I thought this agency was going to be way over my head and they'll never, I'll never get in there. But at least the statue was a French-American statue, so maybe this French-American agency would, would want the pictures. And they did. And then they began giving me assignments to – some of them were paparazzi. Some of them were like the lowest-ranking press conference you can imagine about nothing in particular. Um, and that's how it began. 
I see. So during the the Koch era, correct? That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but notice that your first assignment or the, the one that really got you in the door involved a certain degree of danger. Climbing up that scaffolding is not for the faint at heart. It was fun. So then your work took you farther afield. You said it was a French-American mm-hmm. uh, agency. And then you wound up in dozens of countries. Yeah, well, my you know my sort of youthful aspiration was to work as as a lot of photographers in that agency. It was called Gamma Liaison, and, and Gamma at that time in Paris, which you know it was a very romantic ideal for me. The magazines had enough of a budget back in the day to to finance photographers to travel all over the world and and to cover to cover issues. So I worked on kind of local news for a while, then. Gamaliezan asked me if I wanted to be White House correspondent, which I did for about six months during Reagan, um, and I found it terribly boring. Huh. I probably was too too green to know how to make good images in that in that context. So, um, did they appear in magazines, and would yeah. we have seen them in the news? Yeah, I mean the 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 clients for that agency were you know the major news magazines, mm-hmm. both here and, and abroad. Mm-hmm. But I did move to Paris to join Gamma in Paris because mm-hmm. um, that's where it was all happening. That, those are the years where, uh, you know, the Soviet Union and the Socialist Bloc were breaking up. So uh, I covered the fall of the Berlin Wall. I covered Czechoslovakia. I did a lot of work in in Lithuania, which was kind of the first of the of the Soviet republics to break away. Yeah. Then there was the invasion of Panama in 1989, the first Gulf War, a lot of moving around. When did you discover Latin America, and how did you shift your orientation mm. there? My family is not Latin, so it's. I think it comes from when I studied Spanish in college, and we read a lot of extraordinary books. Um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Julio Donoso, Alejo Carpentier, wonderful authors, and that language is so vivid that I, I began to feel some some comfort, and I began to feel an access to, to Latin American culture through the, through the literature. Um, so I think it began there. And also there were economic reasons. It was easier for me at the beginning to travel to Latin America because it cost less. You know, the agency would finance my trips if they weren't too expensive <laughs> by their standards. Um, so that was the beginning. But I've always felt much more comfortable working in Latin America than, than elsewhere. Huh. I find that really remarkable that for someone who has covered such a politically complex situation, it was really a a literary lure to begin with. You spent uh, a lot of time in Bolivia and created a book, I Am Rich Potosi, pardon Mm -hmm. my mispronunciation. Tell us about that project. I think a few things came together for me in that project. I had studied history in college um, with an emphasis on Latin America and my perspective about this work has always been historical. I feel like journalism in some ways is the first draft. We're providing maybe primary documents mm-hmm. that help to build the historical record. So in the case of Potosi, it's a silver mine historically. That was the most important source of silver for the Spanish Empire. That silver funded the, the empire itself. Um, it was helpful in, in pushing the Industrial Revolution along. It was a tremendous amount of capital for Europe. And it was also the cause of a, a tremendous disaster for the native populations of the Andes. Um, the Spanish had a forced work system in place for over 200 years, and that was tremendously destructive. So when we, in 1991, when we were approaching the 500th anniversary of 
Columbus's discovery, as they call it, <laughs> or encounter with the with the Americas. Um, I wanted to do a much more in depth project, and I convinced my agency to to finance a trip to Potosi to look at the contemporary miners of that mountain, um, who were the descendants of the miners that were enslaved by the Spanish in the past. And their culture and their work practices, their symbolism all kind of sheds a light onto what happened back during the, the colonial days. It's also a, a magnificent and, and very extreme environment. It's 4,800 meters up, which I guess in feet it's over 15,000 feet. And there's just a real sense of there's a tremendous sense of tragedy, but there's a kind of epic quality to the place. It's really, really interesting. Is the sense of tragedy purely historical, or do abuses continue? Is there still a terrible disparity between the mine owners mm. and the workers? These are uh, cooperative miners, um, so they kind of share the misery. <laughs> Potosi is one of the poorest places in this hemisphere. So in economic terms, the results of the conquest are really felt at that time in the countryside around Potosi, the infant mortality rate was 170, 187 births per thousand, which is, you know, very, very high. So it helps to explain, I think, I mean, the mountain of Potosi is on the Bolivian flag, and it's it's kind of like a, a determining place to understand the feeling of a lot of Latin Americans towards resources and why there's so much resistance in Latin America to the presence of foreign companies now, mining companies. This is something you see throughout the continent. Much of that is based on the history. And so I just thought it was a really revealing place in order to talk about Latin American history um, and using the Columbus anniversary basically as, a, as an excuse. Mm-hmm. So your approach to Latin America is deeply historically informed and literarily informed. You made your way from Bolivia to Colombia and to this place that was founded by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, the school at Cartagena. The uh, It can be called the Foundation for New Journalism. You made your way there and, and were teaching. What did you discover? Uh, it sounds like you had an impression of the home of Marquez that was based upon his so-called magical realism mm-hmm. and this concept of Macondo. Will you say this for me? Sure, Macondo. 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 What was it like when you got there and you compared reality to Marquez's version thereof? Actually, they, they fit in some ways to my delight. Gabriel Garcia Marquez himself was there, and he was leading a workshop at the time. And there was a um, news, newspaper story in a local newspaper about a priest in the region who had kidnapped the statue of the Virgin and was holding her until the archdiocese would release some funds that he needed to renovate the church. That is and, sort of absurd, isn't right? it? And then the parishioners were against the priest, and the parishioners were trying to get the priest to, to liberate the Virgin. And and Garcia Marquez, you know, immediately said to his class, we've got to leave the classroom and go to that town. We have to cover this story. So right there, there was kind of a confluence between his work as a, as a writer and and the work of journalism. Yes. The first day I was teaching the workshop, um, he came, which is a great honor. He was dressed all in white, white shoes and a white watch band. And, and I was kind of nervous, you know, and the students were kind of nervous because <laughs> he was there and we started off well. We were in the uh, local newspaper. 
And so we we start the workshop, and then at about 10.30, the the director of the newspaper pokes his head in, and he says, you know, I'm really sorry. Um, this is the time when I should be offering you some, some coffee and some refreshments. Um, but right now there are eight armed men who are assaulting the building, and they're stealing the payroll of, of the newspaper. So the the coffee guy can't get in just yet. But if you wait like 20 minutes, we'll, we'll be able to get you coffee. And his his main – he was like sort of just sheepish about it. Um, just another day. Yeah. Well, that's such a whimsical story. And it sounds almost idyllic, this uh, foundation mm-hmm. there. And Marquez in the white suit mm-hmm. and the priest who steals the statue of the Virgin. But it contrasts so so severely with our sense of Colombia today. Now, you're talking mm-hmm. about um, 15 years ago. What about today? I feel like one of the great benefits of having you here in the room and your book, Violentology, mm-hmm. which we will speak about specifically in a little while, is to give us a sense of what it's really like in Colombia every day. And obviously, it's different in rural areas from Medellin and from mm-hmm. Bogota. Mm-hmm. But for the average newspaper reader here in the United States, we can have no sense of what daily life is. What, what's your feeling about it today, having spent the better part of two decades there? I want to be really clear because my work focuses on the armed conflict. So it's not a book about Colombia as a whole. Yes. And it's not a book about the Colombian people as a whole, um, most of whom stay as far away from the conflict as, as they can. That's not always so easy. But... Um, Colombia is a very beautiful country. It's culturally diverse. Musically, it's one of the most creative places in the world. And the literature is, is very rich. I pretty much, you know, in Cartagena, I pretty much was love at first sight in a lot of ways. Colombia has suffered a stigma ever since Pablo Escobar was blowing up buildings and airplanes and so on. Colombia has been known as a place of cocaine and, and narco-terrorism. So I'm concerned that the work I've done um, may add to the stigma against the country. Um, that's not my intention. You know, you could visit Colombia safely and not even know that there's a war going on, unless you're paying attention, and it depends on where you go, of course. But at this stage in the conflict, there is plenty of fighting and there is plenty of conflict, but it's a you know, geographically relatively large country with a lot of jungle and a lot of mountains, and, and the war is largely taking place in those areas. So I was very careful, actually, to make sure that I would restrict my focus to the kind of dynamics of the conflict in, in military and political terms and not talk about daily life in Colombia. I understand that you would have to make that caveat after publishing a book that says Violentology, a Manual of the Colombian Conflict, with a gruesome picture of a person tied up uh, on the front and that you would feel defensive about the idea of contributing to a misperception mm-hmm. of Colombia as an in- inherently or intrinsically yeah. violent place. Nonetheless, the level of suffering in Colombia is something unlike what most of us are aware of outside right. of it. You mentioned 3.7 million people displaced That's right. over the course of 20 years. 20 years. Um, so the level of suffering in daily life is something that is um, people are without homes, people are kidnapped, et cetera, et cetera. These, yeah. these things are commonplace. Yeah. I was hoping that before we go much farther that you could 
roughly sketch out the major players for those of us who are not as well informed? Sure. The Colombian conflict began in 1964. There was a previous war called the Violence, which was a civil war between the liberal and conservative parties, and that degenerated into a kind of guerrilla conflict in the countryside. That was the early 1960s. And then this war began really when it became a, a conflict between communist insurgents, namely the FARC, or Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, uh, and the state. There's a second important guerrilla organization, um, less powerful than the FARC, called the National Liberation Army. And at the beginning of the conflict, there was a plethora of guerrilla groups. Something called M-19. M-19. Um, there was a Maoist group. There were quite a few groups. All of them have demobilized over the course of the conflict, except for the FARC and the ELAN. Mm -hmm. So that's on one side of the equation. And if we can go back to 1964, which is the date that separates what was known as the violence right. from this current era. Yep. Um, in 1964, it was an invasion or a raid by the government? What happened essentially was that um, there were all these guerrilla bands out there um, that had formed during this earlier war. And the government offered amnesties to them if they would come in from the cold, as they say, and, you know, lay down your arms. Except that one of the most famous of those did that and was is promptly assassinated by state forces. And a lot of the other guerrilla leaders at that time decided, no way, I'm, I'm not coming in. Um, and they dedicated themselves kind of to banditry, you know. Um, they were on some sort of spectrum between being highway bandits and being political actors with a, a revolutionary idea of some of them were taking, you know, inspired by the Mexican Revolution. Some of them were inspired by, inspired by the Cuban Revolution. The founder of the FARC, whose name was Manuel Marolanda, that was his alias, set up an enclave of territory that he and his and his fighters controlled. Um, he probably controlled it quite tyrannically, you know. And the Colombian government and also the U.S. government at the time was concerned that there would be a, that would be the sort of spark for a whole series of independent communist republics within Colombia, which would sort of be the idea of a Soviet. You know, the Cold War was on at that time, full bore. Right. Um, so a great deal of suspicion and, and mm -hmm. fear of communist activity. That's right. And at that time, I don't think the FARC was receiving much material support from the from the Soviet Union, but they were Marxist-Leninists, and mm -hmm. you know. You can meet FARC commanders, you know, nowadays still who are fighting, who received their training in Russia back then, okay. you know, and who speak Russian. Oh. But anyway, the Colombian armed forces attacked the region that was under Marolanda's control, mm -hmm. and they escaped, and then they formed the FARC. Right. And so then we fast forward to all of these other guerrilla groups that you mentioned that have since demobilized, but in sort of a counterinsurgency mm -hmm a number of other groups have grown up. Yeah. Um, so you have the guerrillas on one side, the FARC and the ELN, and they were fighting the state. And they were also extorting and taxing and kidnapping large to medium and sometimes in some places even small landowners to finance their fight. One of these guerrilla groups called the M-19 kidnapped the daughter of a drug trafficker named Ochoa, who was an associate of Pablo Escobar. This was in the early 1980s. And 
those drug traffickers who we know as the Medellin cartel pooled their money and organized a death squad, basically, that was called Death to Kidnappers, to wage war on that guerrilla group. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the the spark that, that ignited the paramilitary movement. And very quickly, um, between security forces in different regions, landowners and drug traffickers, the paramilitary movement spread very rapidly. And their practice was to basically kill anybody who they suspected of any relationship to the guerrillas. And more often than not, that involved people who really weren't guerrilla but who were just leftists in their political thinking. Mm -hmm. So the practice of the paramilitaries for all this time has been to kill trade unionists or peasant leaders or anybody who's really protesting against the status quo in the the countryside. Mm -hmm. One big factor in this conflict is that Colombia is one of the the least equitable systems of land ownership and and income in in this hemisphere, if not the world. There's been no land reform as in other Latin American countries? That's right. Um, There's never been a land reform. Mm -hmm. And many people view the paramilitary movement as a counter land reform because what they did was they massacred widely. And we're talking about through the 1990s into the first decade of this century – so they they use massacres, um, forced disappearance, torture, all these forms of brutality to expel peasants from many areas of the country, and then they seize those lands for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of the three point seven million is the government statistic for people who have been forcibly displaced. People think that the paramilitaries are probably responsible for half of that. The guerrillas are responsible for a good percentage, and then just combat itself. Just the, yeah. the conditions of the war are responsible for the rest. And then, of course, the X factor is drug trafficking. Mm-hmm. And you've chosen in this book to put drug trafficking on the back burner, probably because of the fact that cocaine has been synonymous with Colombia and it's almost a cliche or this war on drugs is the only thing that people see when they mm-hmm. think of Colombia. But the drugs have played an interesting role for both sides, for both the guerrillas mm-hmm. and the paramilitaries. Mm-hmm. It's financed both of the sides, correct? That's right. That's right. Cocaine trafficking is obviously a factor. At the very least, it's it's fuel on the fire. You know, it, it takes a lot of money to field a, an army. You know, in the year 2000 or so, the FARC had a good 20,000 trained fighters out there. And that in itself requires a lot of money. Uh, same could be said for the paramilitaries, who at one point were said to have 30-plus thousand fighters. The thing is that, first of all, the conflict started before there was any international market for cocaine. And many resources have been used by these groups who both finance themselves through nowadays gold, for instance, mm-hmm. because the price of gold has gotten so high. Mm-hmm. The FARC and other groups finance themselves through gold mining. In fact, the Colombian government has declared that illegal gold mining, in, in their term, is the number one enemy of the state, not coca. Hmm. Oil has been a factor. The oil in particular derives revenue from extorting oil companies. Kidnapping for many years was a big source of revenue for the FARC. So I don't think it's drugs per se. It's just that happens to be a very useful way to finance this. Ever since this era of the bandits in the late period of the earlier war of the violence, you know, there's a shadow area between revolution and criminality in all this. In other words, nothing is straightforward. Hmm. There are Colombians who very reasonably will argue that all of this is driven by, by drug trafficking. 
There are other Colombians who would very reasonably argue this is all driven by inequities in land ownership. Mm-hmm. And others would say this is all driven by revenge because people are avenging their parents and their grandparents who were killed in earlier phases of this conflict. These civil wars that have gone on for 200 years. That's right. Um, I think it's a combination of all those. And I think the fact that all those things come together is what gives us so much, um, you know, is the reason why this war continues. Stephen, let's take a break and um, listen to some music. You uh, have selected something in particular that's apropos. Well, Sidestepper is a it's a mixed group. There's an English producer and there's some Jamaicans and, and Colombians involved. And this music was all the rage when I started working in, in Bogota. The lyrics, they're kind of spiritual in a sense. There's one song um, which is called Hoy Tenemos, Mañana No Sabemos. Today we have it, tomorrow we don't know, so live your life right now, which is very characteristic of, of Colombia in a lot of ways. It's extremely vivid and immediate, and certainly in, in areas where the war is very strong, people really have a sense that, you know, we don't know what will happen tomorrow. And that conditions the way people live, and and so I thought it was appropriate. Okay, a song by the Anglo-Jamaican-Colombian band Sidestepper. That was a song by Sidestepper, chosen by our guest, the photojournalist Stephen Ferry. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Stephen, we were bringing our listeners up to date about the Colombian conflict. Just this month, October 2012, we are reading that the FARC is involved in negotiation with the Colombian government. We've heard over the last decade that their impact has diminished, and there was the release of Ingrid Betancourt after six years and Mm -hmm. many other shows of concession. What about now? There are those who believe and who have hopes that this current round of negotiations is really going to be effective. One has to have hope. And there is a sense of very guarded optimism. Um, for one thing, the, the two sides, the FARC and the Colombian government, are, are proceeding very seriously. Apparently, they met over 60 times in secret in Cuba just to lay the groundwork for these talks. Um, so there's a kind of discipline on both sides um, that's that's necessary. The FARC has indeed lost strength since the year 2000, for instance. They they lost strength because they lost a lot of popular support or potential support through their practice of kidnapping, um, which is really horrifying to a lot of people, and their general kind of just disregard for civilian life. They use these homemade mortars that, you know, police stations tend to be in the town, so they fire these mortars and it lands on people's houses. They use recruitment and sometimes forced recruitment of of child soldiers. 
They lay a lot of minefields that peasants step on. Ostensibly the very people that are in their own communities at times. Yeah, that's right. They do enjoy some popular support in certain parts of the country, uh, no doubt about it. But they really managed to alienate the majority of Colombians. And at the same time, the Colombian armed forces were aided by the United States. The U.S. is given, depending on how you count it, but let's say $8 billion in, over the last 12 years in military aid. So you have a combined military and police force that's over 400,000 strong at this point. Um, the Air Force was modernized, and thus they've successfully bombed and, and killed a number of the FARC leaders over the last few years. And the paramilitary movement, you know, through this savage campaign of counterinsurgency, drove the FARC out of certain cities and certain areas of the country. But nonetheless, I think the Colombian state was looking forward to a victory that, that eluded them. The FARC is a very tough and resilient organization. They went back to really classical guerrilla tactics. They're thought to have maybe eight or 9,000 combatants at this point. And they themselves say, this may be just their line, that they're happy with that because they see themselves as a lean and mean group. You know, they have almost 50 years of experience behind them. Um, yeah. And the terrain in Colombia is very apt for guerrilla tactics. Because of the mountains. Because and of the mountains mm -hmm. and the jungles. And they've been hitting the state where it hurts. I mean, it certainly hurts when they, when they kill soldiers and police, you know. But economically, they've been hitting the petroleum infrastructure of the country. And the current president, uh, Juan Manuel Santos, has a vision of, of Colombia as being a you know, world-class oil exporter. And you know, he's interested in a lot of large mining and natural gas projects as well. And the guerrillas have been hitting all these hard, which has an economic impact. And it also means that Santos has, has had to draw a large number of soldiers away from patrolling the highways and other activities that is visible to the population um, just to guarding those facilities. So for various reasons, the FARC has shown that it's not easily defeated. At the same time, the FARC was very arrogant and confident of, of victory in, in the year 2000. And the state has shown them that they're not going to win power anytime soon. So I think both sides are thinking, look, either we sit down or we're going to be at this for another 50 years. Yeah. Yeah, you also mentioned in the text that for many people, becoming a, a FARC member is almost like a way of life. Like I could be a shoemaker or a sign painter or a member of the FARC, that it's, that it's really a way of life. And, and also if all of these grudge sheets uh, are really so indelible as as they seem to be, it seems extremely hopeful that one would just give them up so easily. Yeah, all of that is, is really hard to gauge because in any situation of, of peacemaking in these sorts of conflicts, you always have this tension between um, reconciliation on, one, on the one side, you know, let bygones be bygones, and truth and justice. You know, the truth is generally an investigation into what really happened. So after apartheid ended, for instance, the South Africans had a very significant truth commission. Um, and then there's this justice equation, which is that people want the, the perpetrators to, to pay for their crimes. So, you know, one approach, which it looks like the Colombian Congress and state is, is advocating, is basically a blanket amnesty for everybody. Paramilitaries, uh, members of the armed forces who have committed atrocities, and guerrillas. And while that may be a necessary or an important 
precondition for, for talks. It also, in some ways, leaves the society exposed to, to never really healing these wounds and to just another round of kind of impunity. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they're too big to fail, as we would say. Right. And you actually even have photographs in the book of these uh, demobilizations, which to a certain extent were phony or simply displays, demobilizations, I should say, of the paramilitaries, uh, in which actual paramilitary members were not even present, but in fact, simply actors portraying paramilitaries or something along those lines. Yeah, that's that's an example of how complex this all gets. Um, Under the previous president, Alvaro Uribe, the Federation of Paramilitary Groups, it's called the United Self-Defense Forces of Colombia, offered to demobilize. Most people think that they did that because extradition orders were issued by the United States for their top leaders as, as drug traffickers. In any event, the government of Alvaro Uribe kind of made an agreement with them that if they demobilized, they would get really light sentences. I think it was five to seven years of kind of house arrest, and that would be that, almost virtually an amnesty. Sort of um, nominal, really. Right, really yeah. nominal. Um, uh-huh. The Colombian courts, the high courts who have paid, played an amazing role in all this, said, hold on, wait a minute. We can go along with this this demobilization process as long as the paramilitary commanders confess to their crimes and give back the land that they stole. That opened the floodgates to these confessions because they, they began to talk and they began to name a lot of names which were a lot of members of Congress, the most important members of Congress by and large, regional governors, mayors, Alvaro Uribe's cousin and political ally, um, who's now in jail for that. And this scandal, which is called parapolitics, has, has gone on in Colombia. To me, it's really a victory for civil society, for the courts and for the press who did a lot of these investigations over this kind of huge mafia network that was known as paramilitarism. So when they did these demobilization ceremonies, as you say, yeah, some of them were, were really faked up. And the result is that they're now a new generation of paramilitary groups who are run by mostly mid-level commanders from the old one with new names. Some of them are fighting each other for control. Some of them are fighting the guerrillas. Some have entered into strategic alliances with the guerrillas to move cocaine. Meanwhile, Members of civil society, you know, journalists, trade unionists, and peasant leaders and so forth, particularly if they're advocating for land rights, are continuing to be killed and they're under threat all the time. So this kind of repression against democratic forces, if you want, in the society Mm -hmm. is continuing. And a lot of these death threats are signed by these new paramilitary groups. So from many Colombians' point of view, nothing changed with the paramilitary demobilization. Mm -hmm. In the case of the guerrillas... One fear is that what if the FARC breaks up? They have 62 fronts. Maybe the state says that they've deactivated a few of those, so maybe it's slightly less. But these are all fronts that have operated regionally and have taken orders from the FARC's central command. So one fear is that the FARC will break up into many pieces and they will become that many more marauding, just chaos, Mm -hmm. basically. Up until now, the FARC has shown remarkable discipline, if you want. I mean, it's it still seems to be a, a vertical, centrally organized organization. So that gives hope because it means the state is is negotiating with one, you know, they're negotiating with somebody there rather than a whole bunch of different factions. The narrative that you've just delineated is 
really well illustrated in your book, Violentology. And so um, as you were talking, some of the scenes that you were describing are very vivid to me because of, for example, the explosion of the oil pipeline that you document Mm -hmm. and uh, the demobilizations of the paramilitaries and even some of these, uh, this parapolitical scene Mm -hmm. and the Senator Uribe speaking on the cell phone, violentology does serve as a real primer for those of us on the outside. I'm curious about how the book came together. Were these photographs taken on assignment from your agency? And then how about the text? How did you decide to put this all together? Yeah, I've worked, you know, in Colombia on assignment and kind of financing this longer project as well for the New York Times, for National Geographic, for some European magazines, for Time, for Newsweek, all along. And my work there, ever since I first went and was invited by this Garcia Marquez journalism school, has really been hand-in-hand with the Colombian press. So I designed the book in a way it's printed on a heavy newspaper stock. It's printed on a paper that references newspaper, and it was actually printed on the rotary press of of the El Espectador newspaper in Bogota, which is a newspaper that's legendary for standing up to the violent actors. Uh, Pablo Escobar blew it up, for instance, and they continued to publish. They have had a long history of, of important investigative journalism. So symbolically, I wanted to print it on, on a newspaper press. That press also, fortunately, has a, a technique called a heat set, which um, they've won a bunch of awards for, which allows a true black, like a, a deep black. And, and I use a lot of black in, in my own photographs. But that ink doesn't smudge, which is – that's the problem with newspapers. If you rub your fingers on them, they, they will smudge, and you know, that won't do in a book. But I was able with this particular printing process to achieve that. So – In the period of time in 2006, 2007, as the Colombian press and the courts were investigating paramilitarism, investigating the extent of these crimes, and hard evidence was coming out for what, you know, in the previous years we all knew, but that was an official secret. It seemed to me very important to explain all that, and I wanted a visual language that would reinforce the idea that this is evidence. The text is very carefully researched. I had an intern who's now country investigator in Colombia for Human Rights Watch who's named Max Schoening, who's quite brilliant at this sort of investigation. And we passed the text through many layers of, of checking so that everything was documented and nothing is being said that hasn't been proven. But the crimes against humanity that have taken place there on the part of all these actors are really on a very large scale. And so I thought it was my responsibility, you know, as best I could as a journalist to, to make all that clear. First of all, it's, it's photographically driven. You know, human rights reports tend to be important material that is really difficult to get through. It's <laughs> dense, right? So I, I tried to use the design techniques of, of magazine journalism in particular, which is my background, to really engage the reader. I wanted the paper to, to feel good so that the sense of touch is involved as well. And it lays across your lap nicely because of this hand-sewn binding. That's right. It has a, a horizontal format, the book, yeah. and you can really see these panoramic photographs well because yeah. of the way the book lays, because yeah. of that binding. You know, part of it was around 2008 when the economic crisis hit in this country, in the, in the U.S., I suddenly found myself without work. I'd always had assignments for magazines throughout my career, and all of a sudden they were gone. Mm. Everybody's telling me that there's not going to be any more uh, journalism printed. Mm. You know, newspapers are disappearing one after another. And so that's when I started really reflecting on paper for the first time and like, what does this mean? 
I became concerned that works such as this, if it only exists on the web, there are a lot of distractions there, yeah. right? You can just turn it off by pressing a button. Yeah, um, or go check your Facebook, right? Right. So I wanted this to be a very physical, tactile experience. Yeah. And that's the other reason I call it a manual because mm-hmm. it was made manually, sewn manually, mm-hmm. and you have to use your hands to look at it. Well, when we were talking about old media or legacy media, um, I couldn't help but notice when you walked in here today that you were carrying your your camera, um, mm-hmm. and you told me as we were coming in today that you continue to shoot with film. That's right. What kind of uh, equipment do you use, and why do you make that choice? Um, well, I'm stubborn. <laughs> yeah. Um, I use a Nikon FM3, and uh-huh. I have a a Zeiss lens fitted on it, which is a wonderful lens, and I shoot both black and white and color film. And for the same reasons, really, as as went into the design choices of the book, I'm very interested in grain and in texture. So I've always used films that have a, a visible grain. And the physicality of film is, is important to me. One thing that that I felt as I was doing this research, sometimes I would come across websites that were important sources. For example... At a certain moment, all these paramilitary groups had their own websites. And one of them had a, had on their website a video game, How to Kill a Gorilla. And it was kind of this weird thing. And I thought, this is an interesting visual artifact. Let me make a screen grab. But I didn't do it then, and I went back for it. And all of a sudden, all the paramilitary websites disappeared from the web, right? That can happen easily. Whereas a physical source, a book, a physical object especially if it's in libraries and so forth, it's not that easy to, to get rid of. By the same token, you know, digital photography is magnificent in a lot of ways. It's, it's marvelous. But I am concerned about what happens if you don't have, you know, the next generation cable or the next generation, you know, you have to keep updating your stuff over the decades in the right. future. So um, that those files remain accessible to you. And That's right. And the nice yeah. thing about film is all you need to do is shine a light through it. You don't actually mm-hmm. need a computer to see yeah. it. In terms of lenses, that brings up the uh, question of how close you got to some of your subjects. There are some very daring photographs or pictures of uh, portraits of people that probably don't want to have their photograph taken. How did you get access to certain scenes and what did you risk getting those shots? You know, let me just say in general – Covering Colombia is, is certainly risky, yeah. but it's far more dangerous for Colombian journalists than, than for me. I see. The different armed groups, unlike other conflicts in the world, um, in Colombia, the different armed groups tend not to mess with the foreign press. So, you know, the, the heavy risks are really taken by, by my Colombian colleagues. Having said that, you know, it was necessary to approach these situations very carefully, very diplomatically. You have to know who's in control of a certain zone. You have to find people who are trusted by those commanders, you know, who are way up in the hills and, you know, they have to stay hidden, but also who I could trust. And and so that takes time. And it's very uh, worrying, you know, if I were to make a mistake or if there were a misunderstanding, the person who would pay the price most likely would be the people who took me there or who made those introductions. So it's not just my safety that's that's in question, mm. right? There are some pictures. There's one of Salvatore Mancuso, who's a major paramilitary commander. That's the one that I had in my mind, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I guess I turned the tables on him a little bit with that one because he invited the New York Times to interview him. Um, the U.S. had issued an extradition warrant on him for drug trafficking, and he wanted to kind of wash his image before the American public, and he thought he could do so by having an interview with the New York Times. It didn't work out the way he wanted. But it was funny because we go there and we go, you know, through the sort of complex logistics to get to this clandestine location. And um, he's got this office there, and I could tell that the office had just been set up, like for our benefit. It had a, a desk with this wooden globe on it and a bookcase full of books. And he had a copy of Plato's Dialogues open, like he'd just been, you know— <laughs> He'd just been reading philosophy. Oh, so it was very he staged. He was wearing a white shirt that means peace, and, you know, he's speaking all this lovely stuff. <laughs> but at one moment, he excused himself, and I kind of, like, walked over to where he was, and he was giving orders on this encrypted military phone to some paramilitary commander at that moment, which is the image I made. Yeah. And he's slightly obscured by a tree or some other mm -hmm. obstacle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's an ambiguous feeling there. He's a very charismatic individual um, and a very scary guy. Mm -hmm. at the same time. Yeah. You you mentioned that Colombian journalists and photographers and investigators face a far higher risk mm -hmm. than, than foreign ones do. Nonetheless, um, international human rights workers and investigators have disappeared and been threatened and, and killed. You mentioned in your acknowledgments for, for the book that a couple of uh, Colombians did save your life. Would you like to share that story? Well, um, I, I thank um, two journalists, Carlos Alberto Giraldo, who's, who was an editor at that time, and El Colombiano, and an excellent journalist, and a photojournalist named Robinson Science. The circumstances were that we went up to a, a small hamlet to, to investigate a paramilitary massacre, and a column of the ELN guerrillas showed up, the commander was intent on kidnapping me, um, and it was particularly dicey because um, they were hungry, you know, and he had, I noticed that his, his boots were cracked open, and that was a really bad sign. And my sense of it was he may have wanted to kidnap me on his own without even telling his commanders. Oh, kind of going rogue. Yeah, uh -huh. um, which, is, which is a very, you know, especially dangerous yeah. situation. And I remember telling him, you know, your organization does not have the practice of, of kidnapping journalists. And he told me, I've, kid I've even kidnapped the, Cruz Ro the, the Red Cross. I've even kidnapped the Red Cross, so don't give me any grief. And he said, I've had gringos with the same little face as you. <gasps> um, so that was dicey. Um, he, he, he ordered um, Robinson and, and Carlos Alberto to leave me and, and, and leave the zone. And uh, they refused, which was a, a risky thing for them to have done. And we were held for, for a day. Um, and we managed to, you know, we had the opportunity between the three of us to talk to him a lot, that we have enough contacts with his superiors that if he did kidnap me, he'd have to answer for it as a, as a kidnapping and so forth. And, you know, we managed to, to work it out. And at the end of the day, we were released. But had it not been for both their solidarity with me and also their kind of presence of mind in the way we all figured out how to handle this situation. It would have been worse. Well, we're almost out of time, but I do want to conclude with, with a question about the choice you made for your, your title, Violentology. It suggests a certain neutrality 
it's it's as if you are presenting the facts, as you said before, first draft of history, correct? Some critics may ask whether or not you intend to contribute to the human rights agenda with your work, um, regardless of the fact that you call it a manual and attempt to be neutral and in, in other places recuse yourself from any sort of judgment or evaluation. Maybe you can tell me exactly whether you intend for your work to contribute to the agenda of the human rights uh, work that is going on in Colombia. Your question is, is really well put. Um, the title is actually an, a reference or an homage, if you want, to this brilliant school of historians in Colombia who are known as the violentologists in Colombia. Um, they mostly study the, the period of the violence. There's a historical essay in my book by, by a brilliant historian named Gonzalo Sanchez, who's understood it to be a violentologist. And yeah, in the text, I, I, I'm not, I don't write editorials in this book. I'm not, I'm not putting my personal opinions throughout it. But I have great admiration for these Colombian investigators, um, journalists, and, and historians who, who are looking at all this very carefully. And so my hope with that title is in a way, and actually the photograph on the cover was taken in 1954. It wasn't taken by me. It was taken by an anonymous photographer. And it was, it's a picture that the violentologists, as part of their investigations, they collected photographs and they used them to expose and denounce what was going on at that time. So in some way, I wanted the title to express my respect for and the hope that my book is in line with the tradition of documentation in Colombia. There's a term uh, in Spanish which is memoria historica, historic memory, which specifically means basically the documentation of, of the armed conflict and of human rights. And so in many ways, this is a work of, of historic memory in that sense. I learned a great deal from, from working in the company of Colombians who, who are expert at this sort of investigation. And so all these decisions printing on the, on the newspaper, the title, and so forth, reflect a desire that the book be in that tradition. Well, it's been a great honor to have you in the studio today, Stephen. And um, we'll go out with another selection by Sidestepper. The song is called Deja, which means, I guess, let it be. And uh, it's in a similar spirit of, of flowing with life, you know, as best you can and not blocking happiness when it, when it comes your way, but let it come in. You know, be happy when you can. Sounds like a good lesson for everyone. <laughs> Our guest today on Profiles, the photojournalist Stephen Ferry. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you very much. This is Yael Cassander for Profiles. Thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2012. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. 
information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.